just had a little fight over this message because this is actually a message that I've preached at Redcliffe and at Morrifield. I've not preached it at one in the morning. And I was praying about what to bring about maybe three or four weeks ago for this evening service. And God was like, I want you to do this message. And I'm like, no. And so we tussled back and forward. And, but I really believe that there's something here for the people that are here this evening. And there's two things that I believe God's going to do. The first is that he's going to set you free from the fear of man. I think there's something in that, particularly um, in younger generations. I think the older you get, the what I've noticed is the less that you care. You're like, well, you know. And by the time that you get really, really old, you just wear purple and say whatever you like. And if you ever met those nanas that are just like, they can say whatever they like. And you're like, well, you're really old. I can't say anything. <laughs> but when you're younger, what other people think really, really, really matters to you. And so I believe that's what God wants to do. He wants to set you free free from the fear of man this evening. And the other thing that I want think that he wants to do this evening is to help you not live an isolated life. And what I mean by that is that we, we live a very connected life. We are very connected online. Lots of you would be able to list off on your hand right now some people that you're close to, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you are in relationship and community and walking through the important stuff in life with people. And so I believe that's something that God wants to do um, and to challenge you with this evening. So if you're one of the 10 people from Redcliffe or Murrayfield who were in the morning services and then have come this evening, well, you get a double dose. So aren't you blessed? <laughs> All right, let's pray as we come around God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word that it is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. We thank you that it is able to bring life and clarity and it's able to change things in our life when we submit to it. And so, Father, I pray as we come around your word this evening, I pray that we have open hearts and open ears, that any distraction techniques of the enemy would just stop in Jesus' name, that you would get across, Jesus, what it is that you want to say to people and that we'll be responsive and quick to respond to you this evening in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So I've titled my message, Call the Midwife which we're not going to do this evening. <laughs> no calling midwives. I'm calling lots of midwives at the minute, but that's what I'm calling this evening's message. And it centers in Exodus. And so if you're unfamiliar kind of with the big story of the Bible, that when we get in Genesis, which is the start, God chooses a person called Abraham and says, I'm gonna bless you and your whole family and I'm gonna turn you into a mighty nation. And then he has some kids and then his kids have some kids and then his kids have some kids. And so the family starts to grow. There's a big problem in the family. Well, there's lots of problems in the family. Um, but they end up all going to Egypt. And what originally looked like a really bad plan turns into a great plan for the family. And the whole family, about 70 of them at the time, find themselves in Egypt. And they're in a favoured position because there's a guy called Joseph and uh, he's kind of second in the land. And not this Joseph, a different one, but yeah, he's still a good Joseph. And, uh, and he's there and because of Joseph, they're very favoured in the land and it's a great thing. When we get into Exodus, we're going to pick the story up and we're going to go through verse by verse in Exodus 1. But what I want you to know about is that we, when we hear the word Exodus, we think of leaving places. That's, that's the big kind of meta theme of the book is that all these people are in Egypt and then they leave Egypt and then they make some rubbish choices and wander around for a long, long, long time. 
So that's kind of the big story. So when we hear Exodus, that's what we think. But for Jewish people and for the original hearers of this story, they would read this. They wouldn't see Exodus in their Bible. They would read it as the book of names, the book of names. And that's because of lots of people that are named in Exodus. But you'll see why, because we start off in Exodus with lots and lots of names. It's going to be important that you remember that Exodus names are important. They carry weight. And so we're going to come in Exodus 1 and you're going to see some evidence of the promise that was given to Abraham being worked out. And then here is what happens. Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob. So they're doing like a recap. Like, you know, in Netflix where it's like that recap at the start, this is that. So we're not going to skip that. We're going to actually read that tonight. I normally skip it and I don't like the titles either, but we're not going to do that tonight. These are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each of his family. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. The descendants of Jacob numbered 17 in all. Joseph was already in Egypt. Now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. So we're skipping ahead in the story here. They've all snuffed it. But the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful and they multiplied greatly, increased in number and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. So we can already see just in these first seven verses that the original promise given to Abraham that his family was going to become a great and mighty nation is starting to be worked out because they went to Egypt with 70 and then just a few verses in we find out they're not 70 anymore. They've become exceedingly great and they've multiplied and the land has been filled with them. And so the writer's setting up this scene of multiplication and blessing and lots of babies and children. And I find this really interesting because I find it challenging to myself, just the, the, the tension that's even just in this little section here. Because Abraham has been told, you're going to be a great nation. As, and, it, and, and the words that God uses to encourage him with that is like, as many as sand underneath your feet, if you can count it, like the sand. And if you look up, like the stars. And so I love that thought that wherever Abraham went, whether he was looking down or looking up, he's always got a picture of what God's promised to his family. So that's really encouraging for him. If we got a promise like that, we'd be like, yay, thank you, Jesus. But he died without seeing it. I wonder what, he, what questions he had. Because he was on his deathbed and his family had grown and grown significantly. But it wasn't even, you know, if he held a handful of sand as he was dying. Not even that. And I wonder if he was thinking, God, I haven't seen the promise yet. Now, in Hebrews 8, we're told that Abraham's a man of faith. But I find it interesting that we've got this kind of, this tension between you can have a promise from God and you can kind of be in two halves of it. You can be in the God said it, but I don't see it yet. And then you can be a little bit further down the line and see a little bit more of the promise of God. And so just to encourage you, if you're in that first bit where 
you feel like God said something to you. You're like, I know that God has said this, but I just don't see it yet. You're in the glimpse bit. You're in the bit where you just, you have to have faith and you have to hold on to it and you have to declare it and repeat it and have it around your home. And doing all of that, even if you never see it, doesn't mean that you've not like been in the promise, if that makes sense. And our contribution in that phase is faithfulness. Abraham was faithful. He was faithful to the promise. He didn't just go, well, do you know what, God? It doesn't look like you're doing anything. So I'm just going to decide, actually, we're not going to pick you as a family. We're just going to pick somebody else. No, he was like, actually, we're going to be faithful. We believe what God has said. We're going to pass it on to our kids and believe that the promise is going to be worked out through our children. But the family of Abraham... They increase, it tells us, and increase a lot and multiply and loads of babies and it's all great and it's all wonderful. Well, they're seeing the promise that God said to Abraham. And it might be easy for them to be like, well, we're so much better than Abraham because we're seeing the increase now. We've become a nation within a nation and that's because of our faithfulness. No, no, it's nothing that we do. It's all Jesus. It's all what God does. It's his faithfulness that brings around the promises of God. So if you're in the increase right now, if you're in the place where you're like, wow, how amazing, look, this promise has come to pass, then don't get like arrogant with that and be like, because I've been so faithful and God has blessed me. No, 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 no. God brings the increase and you bless God for the faithfulness of previous generations that have prayed for you to be where you are now. None of us are in this room without somebody having prayed for us. So all of our increase and success that we have, we only have it because at least one person prayed for us. And so we must stay humble in that and be like, actually, we give God glory and we say thank you to our previous generations that have built the platform that we now stand on and the increase that we have. So though the promises take time, they are always sure. All right, verse eight, we're gonna pick it back up. It says this, then a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. I'm going to stop there. Remember, Exodus is called the Book of Names. And it's talking about the most powerful person in the land of Egypt. And the writers choose, make a decided choice. This guy, his position is important. But actually, in this story, he's not even worth saying a name. We don't even, you don't actually need to know. His t- it would just come up king in the subtitles. You wouldn't find out the actor who played it. You wouldn't get a bio on WebMD like this. Like, you know, there's nothing, no, not WebMD. I am, I am BD? I am DB. I try and listen to what Neil tells me, but sometimes it's in one and out the other. That was a fail, wasn't it? All right, glossing over. So we don't know the <laughs> we don't know the king's name. But that's okay. We don't need to know his name. Because the writers are like, this guy's important, but not as important as he thinks he is. Not as important as the situation would suggest. And I think he's left nameless to show where he really sits in the priority of things. And I find this challenging for myself because I think sometimes I'm a bit too quick to name things in my life. I'm a bit too quick to say, oh, this is 
And Pastor Joe's spoken about this so well recently. But I'm a bit too quick to say this is my anxiety. This is my family trait. This is my anger issue that I have. This is my depression. This is my family history. This is just something that I go through. And it's easy to claim it and say this belongs to me. And I, when we do that, we elevate it. It's really easy to go, this is my infertility. This is my Hashimoto's. It's not. It doesn't belong to you. It hasn't been given to you. And in saying that it's yours, you can elevate it to a position of king in your life. When God would want to challenge you tonight, don't elevate that. Some things just need to be left unnamed. So I have Hashimoto's, which is a thyroid thing. I don't own it. It doesn't own me. It's just a thing that I have that I work through. But if I elevate it and I claim it and I say this is, I give it power and authority. And it doesn't need power and authority because Jesus has the ultimate power and authority. So be really, really careful when you start to say my thing. This is my thing. No, no, no. Watch who you're putting in the place of kingship. Elevate King Jesus in your life. Don't elevate somebody else. All right, so a new king to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. Verse nine, look, he said to his people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, we'll join our enemies, fight against us and leave the country. So they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. And they built Pithon and Ramesses as store cities for Pharaoh. But the more they were oppressed, the Israelites, the more they multiplied and spread. So the plan that he had is not working. So the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites. Because if you're trying to, like, if you think you're going to do something, it's going to beat somebody down. And then you do that, and then they just become more joyful and amazing. They're like, oh, it's not working. So that's what's happening. So they just worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor in brick and mortar and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So this new king that people think came from a different dynasty than the kings that were in power when Joseph was in power because Joseph was second to the kings. He had a good working relationship. People think it was a different kind of dynasty. He comes to power and he doesn't really care or know about what Joseph and the nation within the nation has done for them. And he starts to see them as a threat. Which is an interesting thing because if you can kind of picture in your mind a map, there was Egypt and then right on the edge of Egypt, within their territory, but on the edge was the land of Goshen, which is where all the Israelites, all that big, big family, the nation within a nation lived. And then there was Canaan. So a smart person would look at that and think, well, if we're going to get attacked from Canaan, they've got to go through the Israelites first before they get to us. That's a good buffer system. That's a good system. So, you know, if anybody's going to die first, it's going to be the people that we don't really care about. So actually, we'll keep them there. But he doesn't think that. He gets suspicious and he's like, actually, what if the Israelites turn around to the Canaanites and say, hey, let's take down the Egyptians. Well, then you've kind of got two against one and that's not a good scenario. And so he comes up with a system to try and oppress them. He makes an economic choice to do something that he thinks is going to help fix his scenario. Chooses to enslave them. Seems like a wise thing to him. But it doesn't matter because the favor of God is upon them as a nation. So even though 
an evil king is trying to do something to oppress them, when you've got the favour of God on you, that doesn't actually matter all that much. Their life was difficult and hard, but the favour of God did not lift off them. And so they increased all the more. What the writer's doing is he's setting up these really big themes of like life and death, multiplication, and like in a minute, we're going to try and get to extinction. It's like expansion and contraction. It's like this real kind of, it's really dynamic what he's doing. He's like, it's, it's getting really tense in the story. So verse 15 says this, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, whose names were Shifra and Puah. Now, the second name is unfortunate, really, isn't it? Out of those two, you'd be like, Mom, come on. All the names you could have picked, you picked Puah. Seriously, a poor kid would have been bullied on the school playground, I reckon. But remember, what are we reading in? We're reading in the book of names. And the king's name, we don't need to know him, but two Egyptian, uh, two Hebrew midwives. And we know their names. The writer's like, we have to know the names of these women. They're never mentioned ever again in the Bible. They're not made reference to. But here, we're like, actually, we need to know these girls' names. It's important. And they're called Shifra and Pu, And their names means beautiful and child. Which tells us that they are significant players in the story. Actually, these are the important people. We don't need to know about the most powerful person in the land. His name, incidental. We don't need to know him. Two midwives, we actually have to know what they are called. And they're being set up to be remembered forever so that however many thousands of years later in Australia, we're talking about them. That's how important and significant they are in this story. So the king calls them and says this to them. When you're helping the Hebrew women during childbirth on the delivery stool, so the delivery stool was like two sets of stones that you did a really deep squat on and then pushed your baby out. So it's like when, you, when you're doing that, when the, the kids are being born on the delivery stool, if you see that the baby is a boy, kill him. But if it's a girl, let her live. Not good. Really not good. So... Now we've gone from oppression and economic persecution to infanticide. So it's a real big jump. Like, he's a bad character. He would be the bad guy in the story. And as this is being said, this is really serious. But these two midwives, they're not just incidental. They're the key players. And and because it's a great nation, we're probably safe to assume that there's not just two women doing the midwifery for the entire nation. So these girls are probably heading up the midwifery team because they'd be very busy. They'd have to like run from house to house to catch the kids. So the, the thought is that they're, the, they're like the head midwives that then look after their team. And actually at the time, being a midwife was one of the only professions that you could have within this system and within the nation as a female. So you were a mom and you worked, but as a as a profession, a midwife was pretty much it. It was a place of honor in society. You could only become a midwife through apprenticeship, and it was a place of honor. So the midwives were known people within society. 
They were around on the wedding night, which was really awkward. So they would set, <laughs> set the room. Are you glad that we live in modern times, right? So this is how it would have been. So we're like, oh, great, it's the wedding night. So she'd set the room up. She'd get the sheets ready, you know, nice rose petals or whatever everywhere. And then she'd be in the corner playing something like the harp or whatever to kind of set your mood music. So no Spotify playlist for you. No, no, you've got a midwife in the corner playing music, looking away, hopefully. So she's there kind of setting the scene for you to consummate your marriage. She, the midwives were also there to help the females in the society understand their cycles. They were there to help them to know when the right time to conceive was. They were there to help with infertility. They're obviously there to birth the babies in labor and they looked after the babies. So they sorted out the aftercare for the kids as well. So like skilled women who knew what they were doing. They were known, active, present people, part of life, and actually very busy. We know that because they were multiplying and becoming a great nation. So that's not just like, you know, people didn't just like pop up like a, you know, a sim in a computer game. They didn't just kind of like multiply and clone each other. No, they, they multiply through birth, through lots and lots of babies being born. So this is a busy team of women who were important in their community. And their lives were devoted to caring for the most vulnerable. And they held, every time they were helping a woman give birth, they were holding literally the future of their nation in their hand. Every important person, Aaron, Moses, Miriam, everybody that you hear about in the rest of Exodus passed through the hands of a midwife. They, they birthed them into the world. They saw them into the world safely. They were important people. And they're called in and they're given a direct order by the most important person in the land, the king, like the top person. And he says, if it's a girl, let them live. If it's a boy, you have to kill it. Verse 17 says this. The midwives, however, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do. They let the boys live. That's like one little verse. That's, that's an incredible sentence. The most important person who has the power of life and death over your life, who can say one word and you're beheaded or probably worse in Egypt. Like they hold the power over your life. And the Bible says these two women, Shifra and Pua, decided actually we're not going to obey what this guy's telling us to do. We're going to fear God and actually be worried about what he has to say about this situation more than the most important person in this land. Now, when we hear the phrase fear God, like the fear of God, and I passed them out talked about it this morning. And absolutely, if you didn't, if you went in church this morning, go and listen to this morning's sermon because it gives the best explanation of what happens to your life when you live with the fear of God, when you, when you choose to put God first and the blessings that come from that. But for the writers at this time, the fear of God and God as love were like an intertwined thought. They're like two sides of a coin. You can't separate two sides of a coin. It's one and the same. And for us now, that's not always the case. Sometimes we, obviously in our culture, we, we don't like, well, nobody likes fear, but like we don't really talk a lot about the fear of God because 
what those of us that grew up in the church, there was a lot of talk about the fear of God and like God was going to smite you. And it was all like God was very angry all the time, it seemed. And it was like, Ugh! and so kind of, you know, there was a generation of us that grew up like actually scared of God, which is a different thing entirely. A very different thing. And so I think maybe the pendulum swung so that we talk a lot about God's love and his compassion and his faithfulness, and which is great. All of that is absolutely true. But that and the fear of God go together. They're two things together. And we miss something if we just say God is love and we don't kind of do the other side of the coin, which is that it's good and right to fear God. It's not good to be afraid of God. It's not a sense of, if I step out of line, God's going to zap me like a bug. Or like, you know, if I make the wrong decision about university, well, then that's it. I'm just cursed for the rest of my life. It's not that sort of fear of punishment or fear of being smitten by the mighty smiter. Or like, it's not that sort of, oh, what do I do? It's not fear of punishment but it's, it's like a fear and a reverence. Actually, his opinion really, really, really matters. What he has to say about things is the most important thing. So this is this thought that what we do for God, we do out of love, but what we don't do, we do out of the fear of God. And that's what you see in this passage. The midwives are saying, we're not gonna do what the king's telling us to do because we fear God. Because his opinion is more important. And you get this little interesting verse about the fear of God a little bit later on in Exodus where the Israelites, God actually calls them up to the mountain. He says, I want to meet with you. I want to meet with you face to face like I've been meeting with Moses. And, and, and they say this to Moses. He says, Moses, you speak to us, but don't let God speak to us lest we die. And then Moses says back to them, do not fear for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The fear of God in some way keeps us from sin. A healthy dose of the fear of God, of the fear of who we love and worship, puts good boundaries in your life. Where I, Actually, I don't want to do this because I love God so much. I do things because I love God, but I don't want to do some stuff because his opinion matters the most in my life. And I know that if I'm going to do this, he's going to be really disappointed with me. Or like, I'm, I'm going it, to, it's not going to go well for me because I want to do the right thing. Somebody says this, the bottom line is that we will never display strength in the face of temptation or courage in the face of opposition or boldness in the face of disapproval unless we think it a bigger deal to disobey God than to disappoint men. Unless we think it a bigger deal to disappoint God, to disobey God than to disappoint men. And that's the thing is that it's an, the fear of God leads to an obedience of what God wants and, and what he wants is the best for us. But so often we're worried about what other people are going to say. We're worried about their opinion. We're worried about what they're going to say, how they're going to make our life difficult, the consequences of going against them, the consequences of saying, this is what I believe, the consequences of saying, don't treat that person that way. It's not the right thing to do. The consequence of you doing the right thing when everybody else is doing doing the wrong thing. But if you obey God, 
if you want to sort that out, if you want to conquer the fear of man in your life, then you have to elevate God. You have to have him in the highest authority. You have to put him as king. You have to fear him in a way that is like, actually, your opinion matters the most. Obeying you matters the most. And that's what's going to help keep me and keep me in the boundaries of a good and faithful and a blessed life if I do that. These women, Shifra and Pua, they had a correct perspective of where Pharaoh sat in the priority of their world. It'd be really easy for them to go, well, this is the most important person in the land. He can order our deaths if he wants, and he probably will. And, and the, I'm going to listen to what he says, because at the end of the day, he holds my life in his hands. But they will actually know God holds my life in his hands and his opinion matters more than what the king is going to say. Knowing the probable cost of their life and not just them, because remember, there's not just two midwives, they're heading up a team. So when they go back to their team of midwives and they say, I'm going to, we're not gonna obey this order, we're gonna obey God instead. They're now putting their whole team at risk. So it's a different thing when it's just you, but when your decision now affects the lives of a lot of other people, well, the stakes just got a bit higher, didn't it? The stakes just got raised there. But they say, no, actually, we're going to have to obey God instead. Fear God instead of man and let the boys live. And in the middle of an immoral system, it was totally immoral what they were being asked to do, completely wrong in every single way. They choose to obey God instead of man. Verse 18 says this, then the king, so they let the boys live. Then the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? Because obviously they're going to get found out. And in them obeying God, they know that at some point, you know, they're going to do the head count and be like, there's a lot more boys than there should be. What have you been doing? So they would have known that there would have been consequences to their decisions. And there is. They get called back in front of the king and they're like, the king's like, ladies, we had this discussion. Like there was a plan in place and this is what you were supposed to do. And can you now please account for why the fact that there's lots of lovely chubby baby boys around, you know, in Israel crying. And I find this absolutely hilarious, right? Verse 19. The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. That's the best excuse ever. Now remember, they had time to come up with this excuse because they had a plan. They were told you have to kill all the boys. They were like, girls, we're not gonna do this. We're just gonna deliver the boys and the girls as normal. It's all gonna be fine. And then I bet they had a meeting, you know, on the WhatsApp group. All right, excuse meeting. What are we coming up with? And this was the best that the girls could come up with. They were like, and I think there's, there's one of two things or maybe two things together happening here. Either the favor of God is just upon them. And so like Pharaoh was just like, oh, okay. Or, or maybe and, because it was, it was a women-only space. There's, you know, it's a very modern thing for men to be around in birth. For like literally millennia, guys were not around for the birth. So nobody knew what happened at birth aside from women, all right? So you need to have that in your context. So the midwives come to the Pharaoh in his court with all his guys around. And they're like, girls, this is our best excuse we're going to put forward. 
Hebrew girls, they're just too vigorous. Like they call us, but we can't get them in time because you go and then they're just out and you're like, oh my goodness, what happened? Like you're just so vigorous and you gave birth. And, and so they give this excuse. And I wonder if Pharaoh was like, and then looks to his friend who's like, I don't know, I've never been to a birth. And they go around and they're like, is that possible? Like, can that actually happen? You know, they're having a little chit chat amongst the guys. They're like, none of us know. Like, none of us know. We don't know. So maybe it's a little bit of that and the favour of God on this situation. It says, verse 20, so God was kind to the midwives and the people increased and became even more numerous. And get this, verse 21. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. How beautiful is that? I want to finish with some observations and then some questions to help you not just listen to this in a Sunday, but to actually work this out in your life and think, how does this change me? How do I actually apply this to my life? So if you want to take a screenshot of the things that come up, work through it in your own devotions this week. So first observation is this. God's promises are linked to God's timing, not ours. It's really inconvenient, that one, I'm afraid. His promises in his, his timing. So it took 70 people 200 years. So in that whole timing bit right at the start, it, was, it took from Abraham to getting to Egypt, that was 200 years, and there were 70 people. In the next 200 years, they went from 70 people to a mighty nation within a nation. So I wonder, where am I becoming impatient with the promises that God has given me? Can I settle in my heart that God actually knows what he's doing? Even though I might die in the Abraham and the Jacob and the Isaac and the Joseph section of the promise and never see what it is that God is actually doing, but play my part in the wider story. Can I settle that God actually can, can actually do it, that he can actually work out his promises and that my timing doesn't have to line up with his? Second observation is this. The king in the passage isn't named intentionally to place him in proper standing to God and those who faithfully obey him. Maybe ask yourself this. What kings have I elevated above their station in my life? And how can I make a practical choice to replace King Jesus as the highest authority? Might just be as simple as changing your language from mine and my to this is just something that I go through. It might be a thing of changing your thinking that your boss holds your future in your hands that has the power to kill or to elevate your career. No, they don't. God does. It might look like they do and God will use them, but it's ultimately, it's God that raises up. It's God that moves you around. It's God that opens up houses and jobs and he's the one that does all of that. And so have you elevated somebody or something in your life above where it should be and how do you reposition them where they actually need to be? Third thing is this. There is always an attempt by the enemy on increase and fruitfulness in your life. Up to that point, they were doing all right. They were really blessed. And they were still blessed even when they were being persecuted. And Pastor Mark talked about that this morning. But it was when the fruitfulness came. 
It's when the multiplication came. It was when the expansion and the promise started to be worked out in a fuller sense that that's when the attack came. That's when it was, all right, well, we need to just oppress them and then that's not working. So now we need to up the stakes and we need to start killing half the generations that are about to come out. Where is the enemy looking to kill, steal or destroy the promise of God in my life or your life? Can you identify the attempt? Because if you can see it, if you can see the attempt what it is, then you're like, oh, well, this is the enemy. And this is what he does. He comes to kill, steal and destroy. But I serve a God who is more powerful than that. And his plans for me are not to, not to harm me, but to prosper me and give me a hope and a future. And so if you can identify the attempt, if you can see it not just as something bad that's happening, but actually this is an attack of the enemy. This is coming against the fruitfulness on your life. Then you can, you can pray against it and you can kind of readjust your life a bit better. Fourth thing is this. With a promise that always comes a challenge to obey man or obey God. Where am I tempted to obey man rather than to fear God and trust him with my future? That'll sit differently for each one of us. There will always come a choice where actually, do we, do we really trust God? Is he really the highest voice in our life? Is, can I trust him that actually he's going to bring the right person along at the right time for me? Or am I going to take matters into my own hands? Because actually it's a fear of man thing. I'm, I'm just fed up of being on my own and I'm fed up of people looking at me and I'm fed up of people thinking different things about me. So I'm just going to, I'm going to take that control. I'm going to do something about that. That's a fear of man thing. Are you going to decide that actually what God says and his plans and his purposes and his timing is going to be more important to you than the voices of other people in your life. And this might be in a school setting, in uni, in work, whatever it may be. But there comes a challenge to actually whose opinion is most important. And this evening, I'm going to give you an opportunity to respond. If you feel like actually... I've been trapped somehow in the fear of man. I've been trapped in what other people think about me. Other, I know that other people's opinions hold too much weight in my life. I'm not doing some stuff that I know that I should do because I'm worried of what other people are going to say. I'm not obeying God in the way that I know that I need to because I'm afraid of the opinions of other people. And let me just encourage you that when you do that, when you crack that in your life, when you decide actually God matters more, then you get the privilege of doing something amazing. One of these midwives in this team got to birth Moses. They got to hold the person who was going to deliver the entire nation, not knowing. But had they not feared God, they never would have had that privilege. I can tell you now, that woman forever would have been like, I birthed Moses. He was amazing. He just parted everything. Like, he was just incredible. And I knew from the moment that I saw him, he was like this special baby. Like, no. But the, she would have talked about it forever because she totally do. But that was because they feared God. God's, the obeying God and having God first was most important to them. Second thing is this. We all need midwives in our lives to safeguard, protect, and help to safely deliver the promises of God in our life. Who has God placed in your life that is trustworthy, 
fears God and is equipped to steward your promises with you until birth. We had a whole team of people that prayed with us for our visa and for our baby. Now, obviously, like loads of people are praying. Most of you in this room are praying. We're so, so grateful for that. But we had a smaller team of people who really walked the journey like quite intimately with us. That we were like, we're really struggling with this today. Can you pray? And they were the midwives for us. We called them. We said, hey, we need your prayers today. And that was vulnerable. We had to be vulnerable with them to invite them into a very painful space in our world to help them, for them to walk alongside us, not knowing what the outcome would be, knowing that that was going to help deliver the promise of God on our life. Do you understand what I'm saying there? And so we can be very connected, but often I think that level of vulnerability scares us because we're like, well, what if it never happens? It's a real thing. You know, what if we all pray for this? What if I ask a team of people to pray with this, you know, about this and, and it doesn't work out? Well, then I'm going to feel awkward because it's really disappointing and it's like, oh, I don't know what to do. But perhaps the key is in just inviting people into your world and being vulnerable with them and calling them and them shooting the promises of God with you. And in doing that, that helps bring the promise of God into your life. And you're missing something in your world if you're not doing that. And I didn't understand that before, but I totally get it now. You need spiritual midwives in your life that you can call and say, hey, I'm believing for a job. I'm believing for a house. I'm believing for this. I'm, this promise that God has given me, I don't see it yet, but will you stand with me? Will you pray with me? Will you fast with me? Will you do this with me? Will you stand alongside me? Will you be there in the good and the bad? And will you steward this until we see the promise? Who could that be? And if somebody's just popped into your head right now, that's the Holy Spirit. Last thing is this, if the band could join me. Midwives were often barren women, yet they spent their lives diligently assisting birth for the wider community. It says that God was kind to the midwives, gave them families of their own. Most scholars think that these were women who were barren, and yet because they feared God, and not what man said, and they did the right thing at the right time. God blesses them with the thing that they really wanted. And let me tell you, what an interesting journey for them, being in, forever in the labor ward, delivering what they wanted. I wonder this, is there a place of lack in your life that I think excludes me from helping birth fruitfulness for somebody else? Could it be that God uses your faithfulness and obedience to him in that area to eventually bring your own blessing out. You might feel bereft of friendship. You might think, I've got no friends. I don't have a rich relationship world. And because of that, I'm just gonna keep my world small. No, go the opposite way. Go the opposite way. Choose to be a friend to somebody else. Choose to bring people in. Look for the lonely people and become that person for them. I can't tell you how many baby showers I have thrown for people because I'm like, I'm not gonna let this, this infertility that was in our life be a thing that stops me from celebrating other people. I'm not gonna allow that for, you know, to, to make my world small. Actually, no, I'm gonna go the other way. We're gonna have a life group where everybody's having babies before us. Well, great, wonderful. We get to help students with that ahead of time and could it be that that place where you feel lack if you submitted it to God and you gave it to him would actually be the place where God's going to bring that fruitfulness out of
And if you close your eyes with me this evening, I want us to respond in two ways. If for you, you know that the fear of man is a big deal in your life, stops you from doing things, you're worried constantly about what people think, you've changed how you look, what you do, what you say, you've made conscious decisions in moments to not do what you know was the right thing to do. Maybe it's been a bit more subtle than that, but you know that the fear of man is a thing in your life. And this evening, you want to say, I don't want that in my life anymore. I want to fear God instead. I want His voice to be the highest. I want His opinion to matter the most. Then I just want you to stand up right where you are now. I'm not going to ask you to come forward, but this is a big deal for you because standing up identifies you. And even now, some of you are like, I can't stand up because what will people think? Well, if you're thinking that, I'm going to encourage you to stand up because you need to sort it out. And as you stand, I pray over you that God's opinion matter the most, that He become the highest authority in your life, that His opinion matter most, that the fear of God, which the Bible says is the beginning of wisdom, that it become entwined with the love that you have for God, that the fear of God keep you from making decisions that don't honour Him, that you fear Him and love Him in equal measure, that you become bold, bold and courageous where there's been fear of man. We speak against that and we break it off you this evening in Jesus' Name, that you're the head and not the tail that you're a son and a daughter of the living God, that you don't have to fear what anybody says, that the enemy that came to kill, steal and destroy and keep you small. No, this evening we speak life over you. We speak increase. We speak authority over you. We speak the fact that you are a person of influence and authority and you have no need to cower in front of the opinion of man because you're gonna serve the living God all the days of your life and His opinion is gonna matter most. So I speak that over you this evening in Jesus' Name. The second thing is this, you can sit if that was you, if you want to. The second thing is this is, as I was talking about calling the midwives, the people in your world, you keep your eyes closed. If somebody popped into your head, I want you to commit to text them this evening. You can even do it right now. You can take your phone out and do it right now if you need. Text them and say, hey, I'm going through this in my life. And if they're in the room with you now, you can say, will you be my midwife? And they'll understand what you mean. If they're not in the room, don't say that because it'll be really weird. But if you know that you've been living life on your own, you've been an isolationist, you've been trying to do things on your own, commit this evening not to do that. Commit to living community. Commit to be vulnerable with people who love you and care for you and have wisdom for your life and commit to share with them the promise of God and see them walk it out. And that might take years of a job. That's okay. But commit to do that.